You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. As Lindbergh covered the last leg from Cherbourg into Paris, he had no idea that he was about to experience fame on a scale and of an intensity unlike any experienced by any human before. It never occurred to him that many people would be waiting for him. He wondered if anyone at the airfield would speak English and if he would be in trouble for not having a French visa. His plan was, first, to see to it that his plane was stowed securely and, second, to cable his mother to give her the news that he had arrived safely. He supposed there would be one or two press interviews, assuming reporters worked that late in France. Then he would have to find a hotel somewhere. At some point, he would also need to buy clothes and personal items because he hadn't packed anything at all, not even a toothbrush. A more immediate problem confronting him was that his map didn't show Le Bourget, the Parisian airfield. All he knew was that it was some seven miles northeast of the city and that it was reportedly big. After circling the Eiffel Tower, he headed in that direction, but the only possible sight he could see was ringed with bright lights, as if it were some kind of vast industrial complex, with long tentacles of additional bright lights stretching out from it in all directions. This was nothing like the dozing airfield he had expected to find. What he didn't realize was that the activity below was all for him. The sinuous tentacles of light were the headlights of tens of thousands of cars, all spontaneously drawn to Le Bourget and now caught in the greatest traffic jam in Parisian history. Cars and trams were abandoned all along the roads to the airport. At 10.22 p.m. Paris time, precisely 33 hours, 30 minutes, and 29.8 seconds after taking to the air, the spirit of St. Louis touched down on the grassy spaciousness of Le Bourget. In that instant, a pulse of joy swept around the earth. Within minutes, the whole of America knew that he was safe in Paris. Le Bourget was instantly a scene of exultant pandemonium as tens of thousands of people rushed across the airfield to Lindbergh's plane, a seething, howling mass of humanity surging toward him from every direction of the compass, in the words of one onlooker. An eight-foot-high chain-link fence that surrounded the field was flattened, and several bicycles were crushed under the mass of charging feet. Bill Bryson is the author of A Walk in the Woods, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, In the Sunburned Country, A Short History of Nearly Everything, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, and At Home. His new book is One Summer, America, 1927. Thank you for joining me, Bill. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Bill, as I read this book, it struck me that you're rather like a scientist who, and these books are your science experiments. You gather data. You have a, a very strict set of rules that goes into the makeup of how you're going to gather your data. Then you grow the experiment <laughs> in the medium of prose. And I think it's such a wonderful approach. Well, thank you. I don't, I don't think anyone has ever put it to me in such a nice way before. But it's, and it's very ironic because as a scientist, I would be completely hopeless. I've, I've always been terrible at science. I mean, that was why I did a book on science, because I was so bad at science in school. So I'm, I'm very, very flattered that you would think of science as an apt metaphor for me. But um, it, essentially what you said is, is pretty close to what I try to do. I mean, I, I do choose a subject. I, because a book is a huge investment of time, it's got to be something that I'm pretty confident will keep me engaged and interested for two or three or four years. And 
uh, and then I go out and just gather as much material as I can on it, which is no hardship because, you know, once you get into a subject like that, in this case the summer of 1927, there isn't anything I don't want to know. You know what I mean? There's, it just become you become kind of obsessively fascinated with every aspect of it. And you start eventually to look for little details that nobody else ever would care about. And you start scooping all that stuff up, and then you take it away and realize you have way too much more than you can ever put in a book, and you start sifting. So I, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say it was like a scientist, it's more like just being a kind of house cleaner or something, <laughs> cleaning out an old attic. I mean, is really what it's like. Well, I think you're growing the book in the medium of prose <laughs> instead of growing a uh, mold in, in agar. It's it's much more enjoyable for us as readers. One, this book is such a fascinating look at America, and one of the things that struck me is a man who was at the time of this book is set only two years old, uh, put my reaction to this book in words perfectly. It's deja vu all over again. That was Yogi Berra. <laughs> Yogi Berra. I hadn't even thought about Yogi. He was so he was born in twenty five. Twenty five. Yeah. 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 And when, as I read this book, I kept seeing our world again and again, and I thought that was a really interesting parallax effect. Well, I wasn't trying to draw any parallels. In fact, I was kind of, I was, I was careful not to. I mean, in in in, in any explicit way, but I suppose it's almost impossible. I mean, if you're if you're talking about one era, that that it will have echoes and resonances for another. I don't think there's a really a direct relationship between almost anything that happened in the summer of 1927 and anything that's going on now. But what I was struck by again and again was that, you know, there is nothing new under the sun. The kinds of things that are happening now, the the sort of squabbles and arguments and and just even murders and things like that that happen now were, were very much happening in 1927. I, I really liked your sense of creating characters. I think that the characters in this book are just really strong and fabulous. And at the center of the book is a man whom we think we all know, but we get to know in a really different way in your book, Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, Lindbergh is a great enigma. I mean, and I, I don't know how I feel about him. Um, and, and, you know, he was the person that I kind of spent the most time thinking about and reading about and trying to, trying to understand. And I don't think that anybody, I mean, I'm sure that even, you know, Anne Morrow, Lindbergh, his wife, would struggle to to describe him completely because he was just such a an enigmatic person. But in the summer of 1927, he was fairly straightforward. He was a 25-year-old kid from Minnesota who f- came from out of the blue at a time when lots and lots of other teams of aviators were poised to fly from from New York to Paris or vice versa. There were other teams in Europe that were trying to come from Paris to New York. To, to win this thing called the Ortigue Prize, which was, was, had a, lo- a big amount of money attached to it, but it was also extremely prestigious. And while all these other people were sort of tuning their engines and waiting for the weather to clear and, and variously held on, on the ground for, for different reasons, Lindbergh flies in from out of, the, out of the West. This kid from Minnesota, 25 years old, takes off and flies to Paris. And, and interestingly, as you'll, know, as you'll gather from that reading I did, I mean, just in the space of his flight, in the time that he was up in the air, he went from being practically anonymous to becoming, upon landing, the most famous and celebrated man on earth. So quite a, so he, he, by becoming famous, I mean, just imagine, you're 25 years old and suddenly everybody on the planet wants to slap you on the back and shake your hand and talk to you and have some of your time. He would go in a building and, and crowds enormous crowds would form outside just because people would hear that he was in the building. So it was a sort of just 
you know, unimaginable burden that was placed on him, and he essentially spent the rest of his life trying to escape his fame. One of the things that you make clear to us, and this is so uh, surprising, is that when we went into this kind of air race, America was incredibly behind. We had invented the airplane, yeah. but we were we were technologically uh, way in the uh, back of the field. Yeah, because um, you know World War One was fought in Europe, and that was the real the real spur to aviation development was was you know bombings and dogfights and all of that, and so Europe in the in the period of the First World War, I mean, it produced all the best pilots, it produced all the best aircraft designers and it, and it produced the best airplanes. And America fell further and further behind so that by the mid-1920s all of the sort of momentum for aviation was, was in Europe. And America had virtually no industry and, and all there was to do, if you, want, if you wanted to fly, and a lot of people did, you know, you could be a crop duster or you could, you could be sort of a stunt flyer or you could take people up for, for fun rides at county fairs and that kind of thing, or you could be an airmail pilot. And that's all there was. And um, so that was part of the reason that there was this, this eagerness, and Lindbergh was a great uh, ambassador for, for air travel, this great eagerness to try and, um, you, you know, f fly uh, across the ocean to show, to demonstrate that, it, that proper flying was possible. And, and one of the things I th that really struck me was that while every other American and the, the uh, Europeans were trying, were traveling pretty heavy. They would have a lot of people on their plane, a lot of supplies. Lindbergh got on a small plane with a single engine and a couple of sandwiches. Yeah, um, and everybody thought he was crazy because he was going to fly in a single engine plane, which everybody thought was way too risky, and he was going to fly alone without a navigator or or co-pilot, and with no, you know, minimum of equipment. He had no radio, for instance, because he said, quite reasonably, who am I going to radio, you know, even if something goes wrong and I can talk to somebody, you know, it's not, they're not going to be able to save me. So he, he went with, a, essentially in a plane that was, been described as just a, you know, a fuel tank with wings, and, and that was exactly the right thing to do. That was why he got away first. He didn't have all the problems of, you know, sort of balancing a huge weight load with, the amount of lift that a plane could generate at that time. He, he had a plane that could get up in the air a lot better than any others because it wasn't so weighed down. And that was why he got away first, and that's why he won the race. He's such an interesting person, too, because the more and more famous he becomes, the more and more withdrawn and kind of sullen he becomes. And I love the way you draw his character. Talk about the language you use. Well, I, yeah, I mean, he did become more and more sullen, and yet, it, interestingly, you know, that is, you see it in the photographs. I mean, if you look at photographs of, of Lindbergh in the summer of 1927, after he become famous, he has this incredibly flat aspect. I mean, it's really just weird, almost autistic. I mean, I'm not qualified to make that kind of judgment, so I'm using it in a very much layman sense. But, but just, just this kind of not natural look. He looks glazed all the time. And it's not glazed from any kind of shock. It's just like he just doesn't have the normal armory of human emotions. Um, and yet, he was constantly being referred to in the newspaper reports as if he, as if he were, you know, some very extrovert, um, outgoing, happy person, which, which clearly is, he was not. And a few reports reported him accurately as saying that, you know, this is not a happy young man. And this went on and on, and it got worse and worse. Uh, and, I mean, you do have to sympathize with him because, you know, six years after, after the flight, his, he was still, you know, pestered everywhere he went, and his infant son was kidnapped and killed in a really horrible way. And Lindbergh and his wife not only had to, you know, 
faced the, the, the terrible tragedy of that and all the grieving that went with it, but they had to do it with flashbulbs going off in their faces the whole time. So what they did was they, they got reached the point where they couldn't stand the attention anymore, so they fled to Europe and um, lived first in Britain and then in France and in Brittany. And eventually they ended up in Germany just as the Nazis were coming to power. And Lindbergh became really quite unfortunately um, sympathetic to and admiring of the Nazis. He thought Hitler was a great guy. And I think he wasn't particularly, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't notably anti-Semitic, but, um, but he, was, he was drawn to the Germans because of their orderliness. And uh, he liked all the kind of pomp and the, you know, the, 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 the orderliness of it. Uh, but it was really very unfortunate. He, he very much favored Germany and, and became extremely isolationist when World War II was just about to break out, and that ruined him as a hero. He, was, he, he became quite quickly perceived as a villain. One of the things, I love all the other characters that you, you create in this, and I especially love Francesco de Pindero. <laughs> he was such an interesting character. Tell us about this Yeah, guy. he's a great guy. I wish I could have found more about him because he was sort of, you know, I mean, he's never been written about in books. He's just kind of vanished from history, and I could only find, you know, odd snippets about him most of the time. But he was this extraordinary guy. He was an Italian airman. Um, he was a great hero of Mussolini's. Mussolini had just risen to power in Italy. And, and Pinedo, Francesco de Pinedo, was just a sort of quintessential fascist. I mean, he was almost a caricature of fascist. He was like Mussolini. He had, you know, thrusting jaw and put his hands on his hips and he had this, this, you know, this sort of preposterous arrogance about him. But the thing is that in the spring of 1927, when all the, all the other air crews were struggling to get airborne and were failing. Lots and lots of planes crashed, both in preparation and after taking off. It wasn't things weren't going at all well for ocean aviators. Pinedo, in a in a seaplane, flew from Europe to to New Orleans, but doing it in in jumps. So he didn't count as a fly in the ocean. But he, you know, he would go from from Europe to the coast of Africa, then to the Azores, say, and then across to to Brazil and the kind of hop his way up. It was still a fantastic feat. Um, it didn't it didn't qualify as flying the ocean because he was you know stopping all, all, along the way. But he was but it, just at a time when when um, all the other aviators were struggling to get airborne, Pineda was arriving in America and he did this kind of victory tour around America, in which he you know was very pugnacious and really quite obnoxious. He was a bit of an embarrassment. Um, he ended up in. In Arizona, because he had a seaplane, he had to, to land on water all the time. And he was flying to San Diego, had to land at a place called Roosevelt Lake, a reservoir near Phoenix. And it was the apparently they drained the oil tanks to re replace the oil. And while that was happening, some onlooker lit a cigarette and threw the lighted match onto the water, and the water burst into flame, and the plane went up in flame, and so uh, that kind of was the end of Pinedo. <laughs> and it was such a timely end of Pinedo that um, the, the Italians seriously believed for a time that this was sabotage, that we had done it on, porn he, on, on purpose because he was such an embarrassment to us. You know, you have so many different characters who are so interesting. I'd like you to talk about how, when you've gathered up all this research, who makes the cut, who doesn't, and how you winnow down what might be a 1,400-page book <laughs> to something that's a, that's Well, sometimes it was tough because the book is a lot thicker than, than I thought it was going to be. 
Because um, it is, after all, just five months. I mean, this is just one long summer from May 1st to September 30th. And I really did try to keep, obviously, I had to give some context and give background to certain things. But I did try and keep the action pretty much confined to that period. And even so, the book sprawls because it was, it was just so much. It was the most amazingly eventful and magical summer. I mean, just so much stuff going on. But there were things that I had to cut out. Um, just, you know, because you can, you can only put in, for instance, so many murder cases. I mean, there's murder cases all the time all over the place. And so I just focused on one, really, that was particularly um, of lasting consequence. And um, I can't think what other things. There were there was, uh, sort of st stories that started before 1927 and came to a kind of fruition in the summer of 1927. And I, I didn't really want to deal with those because it would have meant jumping back in time too much in order to bring the story to the present. So I tried to stick as much as I could with things that actually kind of erupted in the summer of 1927, like the Mississippi flood and um, and Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs and Lindbergh flying and that kind of thing. I, I love the murder that you talk about. What's so interesting, as we read it, there's one little detail that has to do with a, a policy that the wife took out. And as soon as you tell us that detail, there's not a human being in existence who won't think, wow, that's like, and it proves to be like that for a reason. The, you're referring to the double indemnity case. Um, yes, this woman, she was the inspiration for the movie Double Indemnity uh, and the book by um, uh, James M. McCain. James McCain. And um, uh, so, so yes. I mean, it was the, the case was a woman named Ruth Snyder and and her lover Judd Gray, and they decided, you know, Mrs. Snyder decided that she wasn't too crazy about her husband anymore. And so, with Judd Gray, they decided to bash his head in as he slept, in, in the bed in a suburban Queens, Long Island, and um, she was going to stove his head in with a sash weight, a window sash weight, which gave the case its name initially, the sash weight murder case, which I thought had a really nice ring to it. Uh, it was a completely pedestrian, really largely inept murder case. They were both arrested almost at once, and yet somehow it really it fascinated the nation, and it, it became... Um, it, it just attracted a huge following. It became, the, they were calling it, without any sense of irony, the crime of the century, uh, even though it was really quite pathetic. And, um, and it really, really just filled page after page of newspapers in the late spring of 1927. So that was sort of, sort of my starting point um, for the book. Well, you mentioned, too, that this was a time when more Americans than ever were reading and books were being published at a tremendous rate, and this gave birth, the time that gave birth to the tabloid newspaper, and you have a lot of fun with the tabloids. Yeah, well, the tabloids were, were you know, the, the tabloids were both as a format, and, but also as a kind of philosophy of how you pr pr um, produce news, um, really were of this era. They, they were started um, before. I mean, I think the very first one was 1919. New York Daily News, um, but they really all through the twenties they were extremely popular, and they and uh, and you know they specialized in gossip and scandal and and murder cases and and celebrity, so um, they really promoted celebrity coverage, and a, a lot of people, Babe Ruth not least, Charles Lindbergh not least, were beneficiaries or of, of that. Uh, they were certainly the focus of a lot of celebrity attention in a way that had never existed before. So uh, people, somebody like Babe Ruth was getting exactly the same kind of attention that movie stars had been getting earlier. 
Um, and that was new. That was a new phenomenon because uh, sports stars had been famous and celebrated, but they were celebrated for what they did on the field. Now suddenly they were being celebrated for what they did off the field as well. Um, and Ruth loved that, and Lindbergh hated it. And this is, is what you said. It was the birth of celebrity culture, mm -hmm. which is a really fascinating observation that it, it, one would never think that such a thing would need a birth. It just, there it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was, I mean, and a lot of people, you can see um, a, a lot of people were really, you know, couldn't believe that um, the, the newspapers would want to, to know about their personal you know their their life at home, and and we're really quite offended. Politicians, for instance, a man like Herbert Hoover, you know, when someone would interview him and ask him, you know, what his favorite food was or anything like that, he was quite offended. It was none of their business. I mean, it, it was just a, a presumption that he couldn't abide. Uh, so you, you know, we, we, things that we would think of as really quite innocuous questions now um, were really pretty pretty near the knuckle then. Uh, so it was a, it was a it was a strange time. Interestingly, you know, um, people like Babe Ruth benefited kind of doubly because not only was he getting all this attention, but it was almost entirely positive attention. The, the newspapers were complicit in not reporting uh, a lot of his excesses, particularly with his womanizing and his drinking. You know, you can read the newspapers of that period, the tabloids, as you know, as much as the regular newspapers, and have no sense that Babe Ruth was ever a bad boy. He was just kind of a you know, a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a wild card, but he wasn't um, in no sense of his womanizing or anything like that. Well, you give a great history of Babe Ruth. I lack the sports gene, but this Babe Ruth history is absolutely riveting from the way he was brought up, just destined to be in baseball, to what he did because of the way he was brought up that would now really land him in the tabloids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, I, I think he's a very endearing character. He's, of all the people in the book, I think he's probably the guy I liked the most. You know, um, having studied him and written, uh, researched him, because Babe Ruth, you know, you, he he grew up in an orphanage, uh, and not because his parents were dead, but because they just didn't want him. Now, that's pretty pretty serious blow. So, and you know, if that had happened to me, I think I would have grown up pretty embittered. And Babe Ruth was exactly the opposite. He grew up as this, you know, wonderfully outgoing, extrovert, friendly, happy guy who was blessed with the most amazing sporting talent and he was good not just you know at baseball but but at every aspect of baseball I mean, he could throw and run and hit and do all kinds of things it wasn't just you know socking home runs he could do everything on a baseball field better than anybody had ever done before and um, and of course because of that he was got a lot of attention and he was paid comparatively well compared with others so he was you know they said in, somebody said at the time it was like when he was a, a rookie and let out of the orphanage and into the wider world. It was like letting a wild animal out of a cage. He was just, you know, had money and and the possibility to spend it on anything that appealed to him. And, and uh, you know, not surprisingly, some of the things that appealed to him were not the healthiest or, <laughs> or uh, most admirable. One of the things that appealed to him was something that you detailed the invention of by uh, uh, Mr. Freeman. <laughs> who when I, I the man who who invented the hot dog? Oh gosh, yeah, I forgot about his name. Yes, yes, Babe Ruth ate hot dogs in in a ter terrific abundance. And um, yeah, it was an Englishman. Was his name Friedman? I'd forgotten his name because he, yes. he's a he is a cameo character. He's not a central person, but. Um, but he was an Englishman who came to America. Oh, Harry Stevens, I'm sorry. Stevens, Harry Stevens, that's right. That's why I was wondering, yeah. Harry Stevens. Uh, he, he was an Englishman who came to America and developed a, a, 
a fondness for baseball, but realized that baseball games can sometimes be a little slow and that people get hungry. And he got the idea that what people wanted was a hot snack. And the only thing he could find that kept warm well um, was a sausage in a, in a bun uh, wrapped in, in paper. And with that, he essentially invented the hot dog. Uh, certainly in, in an American context, and uh, and made a fortune. He was one of the one of the few people in baseball in his early days that, that actually did grow rich from baseball because baseball was uh, was quite a drain on the early owners. It was not a good way to make a, a fortune. One of the things that makes your book so enjoyable is your prose and your senses of uh, timing for your humor in your sentences, and, and I it, you do a great job of telling us the story and giving us just these kind of juxtapositions that are really fun to read. So I'd like you to talk about developing that prose voice. And you, you actually insert yourself occasionally, you'll say, about which much more anon. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, do, I really do feel, I have felt always uh, when, when writing books, that you know, it's asking a lot of a reader. You're asking, first of all, for them to make a, quite a big financial commitment if they buy a book of yours, particularly when it's first out and it's in hardback. I mean, I think this one is $30 or more or less. Uh, that's a lot of money to ask people to spend to, for, for an entertainment. And then, because you know books are big, it's, it's quite an investment in time they have to make. So I feel that authors, all authors, have a certain duty to to try and make their books interesting and to try and make their books as accessible and readable as they can. Um, I can't bring a whole lot of intellectual weight to what I do. Um, and so what I, you know, I try to compensate by making them as interesting and, and as enjoyable as I possibly can. And all I'm doing, you know, the, the way I see it, is I'm doing exactly what, what we all do naturally I anyway. You know, if you're just going through life, if you hear something interesting at work, or if you hear something interesting on the radio when you're driving home from work or something like that, you know, you want to share that information. If you learn something that's a that's striking fact or hear an um, amazing news story, you know, the first thing you want to do is when you see your wife or best friends or whatever, whoever you're going to next see, you want to tell them that. And that's all I do in the book is I go out and do research and I find facts that I go, wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. And then all I want to do is share it with people, but I just do it in a written form for which I get paid. So <laughs> that to me is, um, for me, that's an entirely satisfactory arrangement. Well, one of the things I think that in this book I really love to read about was your uh, story of the prohibition which is such an interesting time. And this is one of the places where I had that deja vu all over again because we have a, a single man who's leading a, a, something with a three-letter acronym that you know strikes fear into the heart of politicians. And <laughs> I thought, wow. It's, uh, I'm sorry, we're talking about uh, uh, Wayne B. Wheeler. Oh, yeah, Wayne, uh, Wayne Wheeler and the ASL, which yes. is reminiscent of another organization that strikes fear into the heart <laughs> of politicians these days and perhaps re represents some bad policy decisions. Well, the ASL was the Anti-Saloon League, and Wayne B. Wheeler was just ferociously opposed to drinking, um, almost in, 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 in an irrational way. I mean, I think you can make a very good case that prohibition was itself a sort of irrational act because, you know... Um, Every other nation in the world, including America up to this point, you know, believed that drinking in moderation was a perfectly natural thing to do. I mean, we still do it. We think there's nothing wrong with a couple of drinks after, you know, in the evening, that sort of thing. Uh, and yet, um, w Wayne B. Wheeler and, and other people who supported him believed, you know, absolutely fiercely believed that nobody should be allowed to drink anything ever 
under any circumstances, and that they should be punished as severely as they possibly could be, uh, to an irrational extent, to, and to such an extent that, that he more or less bullied the federal government into poisoning industrial alcohol so that, it, that if it was diverted, it to be made into bootleg gin and, and so on, it would poison people. I mean, the, the government of the United States agreed to poison industrial alcohol, you know, to put mercury or strychnine or that kind of thing in it, really lethal um, toxins in, into it, knowing that, it, that people would, could very well be blinded or crippled or killed by it um, as a way of um, a dis disincentive to the wider public. So the American government actually engaged in a campaign of randomly but intentionally killing its own citizens as a way to try and make others behave themselves. Extraordinary thing. Um, I, I, you know, I just I don't think there's ever been anything that you could compare that to. That's just the most amazing thing. And it was almost entirely because of this, this misguided, really quite evil little man named Wayne Wheeler. And prohibition led to the rise of another man whom we're all familiar with, Al Capone. Yeah, well, the thing about Al Capone is that, you know, he was very popular among just average people um, for, for all kinds of reasons. But one of the primary reasons was that he, you know, he supplied good stuff. If you bought from Al Capone or from the, the, the outfits that he was controlling, you didn't get poisoned alcohol. It wasn't diverted industrial alcohol that was sort of made into low-grade hooch. You got decent stuff from, from Capone. And his organization was so, so fantastically, so, sort of wondrously corrupt that, you know, that Chicago actually still had breweries and you could get beer in Chicago. And, I mean, you cannot hide a brewery. A brewery is a large enterprise. Uh, if, you, you know, if you're brewing on a large scale for a whole city, uh, you, you know, breweries are big things. And so it requires a huge amount of corruption. I mean, you have to have police and local officials and all kinds of people turning blind eyes to it. Everybody knows it's there and they have to pretend they don't see it. And Capone was the master at that kind of thing. So the interesting thing about Al Capone was, was that, you know, if you sort of put aside the fact all this terrible criminality and, and brutality, he was he was also just a really, really successful businessman. One of the you know, one of the biggest and most successful businessmen the country's ever produced. And he was just a kid, like Lindbergh. You know, he was only twenty five and twenty six during his peak years. And he was only in his peak years only lasted about two years. So um, he was he was just a kind of a very young man. Nothing like the the sort of middle aged Robert De Niro type that most of us imagine when we we think of him thanks to the movies. And being that he was a businessman, it was his business that uh, brought him down by a woman who made a brilliant innovation at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Her name was Mabel Walker Willebrand. And, and she, she, for all kinds of reasons, she's quite an extraordinary person in her own right. But she had got a job with the Justice Department. And, and one of the things she was charged with trying to do was you know, stop these these bootleggers and mobsters, and and it was really hard. To, you couldn't you couldn't bring them to trial because nobody would testify against them. I mean, you'd be foolish to testify against somebody like Al Capone because, you know, you would be taken out and killed. Um, uh, and, you know, you'd end up in a lake with a lot of concrete around your feet, and so um, nobody would testify. And so there was no way for a long time. These people seemed absolutely impervious. So nobody could get to them. And Mabel Walker Willebrand came up with this completely out of left field idea, which was, she, you know, she saw that these people were really rich, and yet none of them filed income tax returns. So let's go for them for income tax evasion. And this is a strategy, obviously, that is still used today. But at the time that she 
suggested it. It was it was so novel and so kind of unexpected that people just could barely assimilate it. And and at first they were re- really reluctant to try, it. and then they realized that actually it's brilliant. It works perfectly well. It's the best way possible to to get these guys, and they're still using it. And in the file of uh, Deja Vu all over again, you have a great picture of the meeting of the first four horsemen of the first financial apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, but this, yes, I mean, it, it was kind of an interesting demonstration of the fact that America, although America was, was unquestionably the, the, the richest and most powerful nation in 1927, it wasn't the most confident. You know, we think of America as leading the world, but in the 1920s, we still took our lead from Europe in most fields. We still, um, you know, most scientific discoveries were by Europeans, Einstein and Heisenberg and people like that. Um, In 1927, America still hadn't won a Nobel Prize for literature, for instance. So we just kind of expected that everything intellectual would be presented to us from Europe. And, and that also included decision-making about world affairs. We were happy to sort of take a, a back seat and let others guide us. And, and in the summer of 1927, partly for that reason, four most important central bank governors in the world, from the Bank of England, Bank of France, the Reichsbank in Germany, and the New York Federal Reserve Bank, all met in a secret conclave on Long Island, interestingly, in a house that's just under the flight path that Lindbergh had recently flown over. And they, among themselves, had a secret meeting and decided at exactly the wrong moment to reduce interest rates by a small amount. Um, but And the idea of it was not to benefit the American economy, because it was booming. The idea was to uh, that it would be a help to the European economies that were still re- trying to recover from the war. So we did it, the governor of the Central Bank, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, did it as a way of helping European economies. But it had the effect of, as been described, as lighting the, the, the match under a bonfire. And the, the American economy just boomed. I mean, kind of out of control. The uh, stock market went even crazier. It was already kind of going crazy. And, and it, it went crazy. And of course, there had to be some sort of an adjustment further down the line. And, and in 1929, that adjustment came in the form of a spectacular crash, which was followed by the Great Depression. Not quite the apocalypse, but pretty close. But just in case we were miss the apocalypse, there's an old saying that whom the gods would destroy, they first give TV. <laughs> and, and that came courtesy of Philo T. Farnsworth, who yeah, you have a lot of fun with him. If, if, if there's ever anybody who deserves to be better remembered, it's Philo T. Farnsworth. Because I mean, not only did he invent television essentially single-handedly, television as we know it now, um, which is in itself quite amazing. But he was 15 years old when he got the idea. You know, he was a farm boy in Idaho. He was plowing his dad's field, and he was doing going back and forth, as you do in a field when you're plowing. And he was very much into science, and particularly electronics at that time, because that was a hot new field. And, and he was reading every kind of popular science magazine he could get, any articles on, on electrons and electronics. And he just occurred to him, as he was plowing his dad's field in a back-and-forth manner. He thought, if, I, if you sprayed electrons across a glass screen in the same way, you could paint an image on it. And if you, and if you repeated that so quickly that I would be fooled into seeing a, you know, a distinct um, you know, screen-sized image. And you could, uh, if you did it over and over and over very quickly, they would, it would see a moving image. And that would be a way that you could, you could transfer images from one place you'd be you know, recording in a studio and send it through 
through the air and have it come up on television screens elsewhere. Brilliant insight, 15 years old. And he then spent a lot of the next several years working on it. And in the summer of 1927, when he was still only 20 years old, he finally succeeded and, you know, demonstrated television um, at the first working electronic television, television as we know it now. Quite an amazing thing. And for various reasons, which I go into in the book, he's you know, completely forgotten. And in fact, there was a sort of intentional campaign to kind of to trample on his memory. Um, but he deserves to be a whole lot better remembered. That's one of the things I think this book does a, a fabulous job of doing, is recreating this period for us in, in a manner that um, brings forth what's important about this period. And, and you say that well, this should be known in, in perhaps as the age of loathing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I was being a little bit tongue-in-cheek when I said that, but, but there is a, a lot of truth in that because there was also, you know, for all the euphoria and the kind of dancing in the streets, and you, know, you think of the 20s and you think of the jazz age, and you, the image, I think, that comes to mind always is, you know, flappers doing the Charleston and having a great time and being you know, a period of abandon and happiness. It was also a lot of darkness there. And and a lot of it was pointed at immigrants. Um, I mean, it sort of goes without saying that a lot of it was pointed at, at blacks, but but um, a lot of it was also pointed at, at Jews and, and, and Italian immigrants in particular. Um, the West Coast, more so perhaps to Chinese immigrants and, and Asian immigrants, but in the East, there was certainly a, a lot of ill will towards Italian immigrants, they were associated in many people's minds with anarchy and anarchists. And, and it has to be said that most of the anarchists in America who were setting off bombs here and there from time to time were Italian immigrants. And, and there was just this feeling among a lot of people that you know, this, this was extremely ungrateful of them. I mean, here the United States had welcomed them in and given them economic, economic opportunity in the way that they were being repaid was by setting of bombs and um, disrupting life and being, you know, trying to bring down the American government, and and there was some truth in that. But the problem was that the, that, that feeling be, became a sweeping judgment against, you know, the anarchists were a very very tiny proportion of Italian immigrants. The Italian immigrants were actually statistically shown to be just about the most law-abiding of all the groups. But thanks to anarchists and also a lot of people like Al Capone, the Italians got a bad name, and so there was quite a backlash against them for for criminality and for disloyalty. And, and you mentioned the bomb-throwing anarchists, which we think we invented the bomb-throwing anarchists here in the 21st century, and, and no, that, they, they had a good start much earlier on, didn't they? Yeah, and, and the two people that, that came to represent it, two rather hapless Italian immigrants, were Sacco and Vanzetti, um, and they were executed in the summer of 1927 for a crime the, the, although they were self-declared anarchists, they were they, and may actually have got up to bad things. I mean, they may have done bad things, but they were they were convicted of a crime that they almost certainly didn't commit, and um, executed for it was a payroll robbery in South Braintree, Massachusetts, and they were ex uh, convicted on the flimsiest of evidence, and most evidence showed that they, they not only weren't there but couldn't have been there, um, and yet they were convicted anyway and executed, and that became a huge celeb all over the world. It was not for some time after the execution. It was not safe to be an American on the streets of Paris or Buenos Aires or Berlin or lots of other places because you would get beaten up. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about as you put this book together. Talk about your idea of you know formatting and how how do you put this together? 
Oh, well, I thought, I really thought it would be very easy and straightforward. I mean, I seriously did, because I thought it's, you know, it's chronological, so the, the running order is dictated by the chronology of these events happening. And the book starts with, you know, on May and, and goes forward to September. So it is really tried to be focused on this one summer. But what I found in practice, what happening was that, you know, first I introduced like Charles Lindbergh and the flight, and he takes off and goes off to Paris. But then I also started introducing other people, sort of supporting characters, Babe Ruth and Al Capone and others that we've mentioned in our talk so far. And all of those stories continued. You I mean it wasn't like you introduce Al Capone and then he's finished with you. Int introduce him, and then you've got to keep that story going through the, through the summer. So by the by the time we get towards August, I've got it's like I'm a juggler with thirty balls in the air, and it was. It was. I was telling a lot of stories, and the the later parts of the book were really hard for me to to write, because I, I you know I was sort of very indecisive about. Do I I don't want to, you know, I've got to keep Lindbergh in here, but do I, you know, I've also got to tell these other stories. So how do I how do I balance it between, you know, how much do I tell about Lindbergh now, and can I leave some of this to, you know, twenty pages from now, or will people forget all about it? And it became just a, a question of. Of quite a lot of sort of frantic judgments, trying to keep all of these the story about all these people and keep the story itself moving along. Um, so whether I succeeded or not, I I, I don't know. But I, it it was a real challenge. I can tell you that. I've been speaking with Bill Bryson. His new book is One Summer, America, 1927. Thank you for joining me, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.